0: If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now.
1: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Well, thank you everyone for being here today to celebrate the launch of Sophie's third novel, Cursed Bread. Um, Happy happy Publication Day is today. Um, For those of you who haven't read Cursed Bread, which may be a fair few because I don't know who's rushed in early this morning and read the whole thing today, but um, you're in for a treat. Um, it's a novel that simmers with heat and feeling and that feels a threat bubbling over at any point Um, it's really like an exploration of the kind of fearsome power of desire and want like how desire for another person for another life um, for something still inscrutable can consume a person can remake them and can maybe destroy them as well Um, I think that this novel has everything that readers love in Sophie's writing. The way that the senses are set alight, the tight, controlled prose, which somehow releases intense colour, smell, feeling. There's a kind of insistent vividness to Sophie's writing. Um, You are never not within where she places you, and her characters are tenacious and loud, even when they're uncertain. And there have already been great reviews. The Telegraph have hailed Cursed Bread as a shimmering fever dream of a novel, um, which sounds pretty good. The Guardian called it gripping, um, a quietly rich maturation of Macintosh's skill. And someone on Goodreads has said... Who knew mass poisoning could be so sexy? <laughs> Which sounds good. Um, but anyway, let's move on to getting the author to say something. Um, so we thought we could start by maybe reading from Curse Bread um, and also just explaining a little bit about what the novel's about.
2: Yeah, um, Yeah. thank you so much for being here on Publication Day as well. It's really lovely to see so many people here um, and to celebrate this with you, my weird little book. <laughs> um, yeah, so Cursed Bread is based like, incredibly loosely on a true story, which um, in 1951, um, the town of Pont-Saint-Esprit in, in, South, in South France was um, suffered a mass poisoning event and the whole town kind of was struck down by hallucinations. And I think I, I read it in the kind of one of those articles that was like, stranger than fiction. I remember reading it and thinking, stranger than fiction indeed. And I've always been fascinated by kind of mass poisoning events and kind of mass hysteria events. And I sort of filed it in my brain as an interesting story, um, but somehow kind of kept returning to it. And over the years, it kind of turned into something else, not really even about the poisoning so much, but I think, you know, more about how, I guess, the backdrop of the poisoning became a setting for thinking about how you know how how permeable reality can be, and um, what happens to our kind of our relationships with each other against that kind of background. And um, yeah, so I was just going to read from the beginning of his Bread*. Actually, I'll just read the epigraph as well, which by Sarah Manguso, just because um, I think it sort of is yeah fitting. Nothing's gone, not really. Everything that's ever happened has left its little wound. When I recall the first time I met Violet. It embarrasses me. I hold the memories up to the light and think, did it really happen like this? And even if it did, why not tell it differently, more generously? Why don't I pretend even to myself? There's nobody left to know, nobody who could catch me out. I could say that she came in and took my hands in hers and looked into my eyes and said she always wanted a friend, a true friend, that she could see we were alike with twin ravaging hearts under our ribs. My dour blouse could not conceal that from her. I could say that she picked me out of everyone in the town, was drawn along the sun-bleached stone of the pavements by hunger, by instinct, to where I had always stood, waiting. I could say a lot of things, but perhaps it's best to be honest now. I didn't sense her walking towards me on that chill morning in early spring, didn't notice her opening the door to the bakery her hair was dark and loose spilling over her stiff white blouse and the lace at its collar she hung behind the other customers looking at the loaves stacked behind me one by one as if making an important decision the other women in the shop greeted her welcome they said we've been expecting you She smiled at that and I had to stop myself from brushing my hand against hers when I passed her the loaf she finally chose. But I couldn't say much to her. I was afraid of her. She thanked me and left and through the window I saw her pause and open the paper bag for a second as if she was considering tearing into the bread like a dog. But she didn't. She closed the bag and then was gone. I stared after her until the next customer. I don't remember who interrupted me, impatient for their breakfast You've seen a ghost, they joked snapping their fingers When I returned home later I found my husband asleep on our bed He slept like a baby insensibly, with his arms thrown out I passed my hands over his body not quite touching along those splayed arms and along his legs and finally, gently lowered my palms to his chest He was fully dressed I climbed onto the bed and folded myself on top of him. His breathing changed, but he refused to admit he was awake. Please, I asked him. I pressed my face into his neck. He was sweating. I wanted to put my hand over his mouth so he would stop pretending, but I knew he would rather suffocate than be caught. He kept his eyes closed. I battered at his arms, his cheeks very lightly, and then less lightly, and then not very lightly at all. I can admit that in those days I was sometimes jealous of the dough my husband put his hands into, worked so tenderly and tirelessly with up to the elbows. I can admit now that his bread really was the best. There was such beauty in breaking it open hot from the oven and the steam pouring out, in feeling your appetite worrying at you and knowing it would soon be sated, the astonishing fact that, living as we did in this new time of peace and plenty, we might never have to feel hungry again. He was on a constant mission to perfect it. You might have said it was his life's work. You might have said this not entirely seriously, but he was very serious about it. I was jealous too of the purity of his focus, the incremental moves towards one faultless loaf. But what then, when there was nothing left of the bread to improve? What then? Eat of it and be filled. Eat of it and be transformed. Eat of it and nothing changes. The almost imperceptible recalibration of our desire, our satisfaction. Try again.
0: So, you know, you've spoken about, you mentioned the historical seed that it kind of begins, it began with for you. Um, But, I mean, how did it get from reading this article to it becoming... Something so, you know, about these particular characters, about Violet and Elodie and the ambassador. What was the kind of journey to that particular obsession? Yeah, I just realised I kind of mentioned the event and I didn't really speak that much more about actually the
2: background behind it. I think when you kind of live in a story for so long and when you've kind of, I'm so familiar now with this kind of historical thing. Um, So the event that kind of led to the poisoning has never been proved. Um, but the kind of the main theory that seems most likely is that it was um, poison flour, um, so that's kind of been the thing that everyone's working on. And so the the story follows Elodie, the baker's uh, the baker's wife, um, and kind of her summer preceding the poisoning as. She um, becomes obsessed with the a couple who arrive in the village because another theory, <laughs> um, which is the one that kind of held a bit more fascination for me, was that it was all part of a, a mind control experiment by the CIA so a more outlandish one um, but one um, that you know sort of grabbed onto me um, and so sort of melding these two theories and thinking about how they could have combined and what could have possibly happened is where Coastbury came from so the um, yeah the story is um, follows. Elodie, the baker's wife, and her obsession with this new glamorous couple who come to the town and seem to have a life um, that she kind of has always wanted and doesn't have. And yet, yeah, like Rebecca has said, the idea of um, this sort of desire, this propulsive desire taking hold of her and changing like the trajectory of her summer.
0: And um, it's it's kind of told in, in retrospect, right? So we, we have the the vegas wife, Elodie, and she's kind of remembering these things or, or kind of, like, asserting what's happened to her um, and what we're trying to assert. And in, in Tweed as well, these, like, uh, letters that she writes to Violet. Um, and I was really interested in, in, like, when you decided that you would tell the story in retrospect rather than kind of putting us into a happening live. Like, what was it about what you get from kind of a re- retrospective telling that mm. convinced you?
2: Um, I think in, in the writing of the book, it was really hard figuring out the best way to find the narrative and the best way to kind of tell the story. Um, And I actually wrote, I wrote wrote many drafts anyway, (laughs) Um, but with Bread*, I kind of, I wrote um, a couple of previous drafts um, through different voices where I kind of got quite far in the book and then realised it wasn't working. Um, I think Elodie is a super unreliable narrator and she's someone who is a bit of a fantasist and she's very caught up in kind of her dreams her fantasies her memories more than anything Um, and so by having the two narratives the one that's kind of a bit more of a traditional one where she's kind of you know, telling us, the audience, what happened that summer, telling us about her feelings for the couple, telling us, like, the story itself. Um, But then we have these letters where, in the present day, she, you know, she's existing, the event has happened, we don't really know much about it, we just know that she's here somewhere else addressing Violet, so clearly something has happened. Um, But that idea of her addressing Violet, she's kind of at her most honest because she... Yeah, she's incredibly unreliable with us all the time. And just the idea of these two narratives where someone, I guess, can be um, more honest or more themselves. Um, and we don't really know, like, who is the real, who's the real Elodie? Like, who, what is the real story? What is she actually, you know, what's actually happened? What's her actual experience been? Mm. It's sort of this, like, private, I mean, she's, she's talking to, uh, to Violet, but she's also kind of talking to herself.
0: And when you were writing it, did you, did you feel like you were certain about who she was yourself? Or was she like a kind of mystery that you were kind of unraveling as you were writing it?
2: I think, yeah, a character's kind of, I mean, it sounds like it's cheesy to be like characters surprise you because, I mean, you're literally in control. <laughs> um, but it's that thing of kind of, I guess, the more you think around a character and the more you develop a character and the more you come to understand what you're trying to say, the more kind of layers you uncover. And yeah, it was, just, it was kind of through writing those letters to Violet that was kind of how I felt I get I got more of an understanding of Elodie and what she was actually trying to achieve you know in her entire obsession what she was trying to achieve in the telling of her story because I think um, yeah so much of the book is about narrative and it's about you know how a story is told and who tells the story and how a story is different when it's told by another character and that was something I learnt, you know with the other drafts when I was kind of thinking about how to tell the story of the ambassador and Elodie and Violet, because um, one of my early drafts was in Violet's voice. And hmm. I was kind of interested how it was kind of like, it was quite dead. <laughs> and I was kind of, kind of halfway through it. I was like, why is this like, not working? Um, and then I was like, oh, Violet's kind of a character who is not actually like very interesting to hear the story from her perspective. It's more interesting to hear it from someone else's. And that realization kind of, I don't know, I think this. I'm sure you find it, yourself with writing you sometimes have these moments in a book where you know you have all the stuff in place like I was like okay I've got this amazing story I've got this great idea I've got these notes I've I've done everything but it's not quite working and that was the moment the narrative kind of made it come
0: together that Mm. makes sense it kind of just sort of everything sort of clicked and I was like I see I see what I'm trying to do. Completely and do do you because obviously with the the Cure and, and blue ticket like those are often described as like feminist dystopian fiction. Um, do you, do you feel like Her Sprite is, is a move away from that? Um, do you think it's placed within, um, like our world rather than your own world? Or do you think that the kind of boundaries and rules still, still are kind of distinct from here? I think definitely it's in
2: our world, but I also think, I I do like the idea of occupying a kind of space with those other books too, even if it's not kind of explicitly speculative, um, you know, it's a super loose telling of the story. I, I like to think of it as like historical speculation. Um, and, you know, it's still kind of, I never mention a town by name. I, I, it's all, you know, it's still quite vague, which I've kind of done on purpose because I kind of wanted it to feel um, out of time and out of place. And I almost think like sometimes when I'm reading historical fiction or, you know, you can kind of get a little bit bogged down by the detail or you can feel like very placed in one in one time. And I definitely kind of didn't want people to feel like to kind of be getting distracted by like, oh, this is like a very inaccurate historical detail <laughs> or, or like this is a very specific place. Mm-hmm. I should be feeling a very specific thing about like this or I should, you know, I, I think um, it, it. I I just love to borrow, <laughs> which I think it would also be annoying because I think if you're kind of if you are expecting a retelling of the story, much as like with blue ticket and the Watercure. if you are expecting a kind of a very specific kind of dystopia which is fleshed out and you're kind of exploring things um you're maybe not going to get what you signed up for and i think that's maybe something that might happen with (laughs) crisper with historical fiction fans but i'm hoping that people will kind of enjoy that kind of dreamlike state which is more the kind of thing i was aiming for
0: yeah do you think that there's almost like a because it sits as your third novel which which follows two other novels that you know have Really explored a kind of other world, explored a kind of um, dystopian framework. That um, people are more likely to apply that to Curse Bread* and, and kind of go into it expecting another world. I think so. I, I hope so because I don't think. Um, yeah, I think if you have read my books
2: before, no one's going to be like. I, th- I think it'd be more surprising to be like, "Oh, this is like you know, incredibly like detailed, eight hundred pound, uh, hundred um, page <laughs> novel about like you know." Daily life in France in the 50s. Um, but I, yeah, like having, being able to like take something and use it as a launching off point um, to have this exploration of, you know, like ideas and that freedom to kind of move in a world that is uncanny and not quite ours. I just find it a really fruitful space. I can't remember, I think um, there was a writer who coined the term, but my agent, Harriet, she um, gave it to me once. It's called fruitful ambiguity, which I think was like a really lovely term, that idea of there being this space around the known um, where we can kind of fill in the gaps, not in a way of being kind of purposely ambiguous, but just, um, you know, or kind of like leaving too many gaps because you don't know what's happening, but in giving people a framework to, you know, have their own experience and to, I guess, suspend disbelief a bit and to kind of go into this almost like trance-like state. Maybe, yeah, maybe that sounds like silly, but... <laughs>
0: yeah. No, but definitely, and I, and I feel like um, it's, it's such an obviously fertile ground for you and it's kind of like I don't know like even if you even if you were writing like a incredibly um true to this room this this world um the way that you kind of conjure feeling and like being inside someone's space the way that they see things is so particular to them that you instantly feel kind of in a kind of otherworldly territory Mm -hmm. um and I feel like that's such a kind of credit to, to what you do, which is that you, you create such a kind of particular interiority that you're instantly kind of transcended, you're taken taken somewhere else. And when I was reading it, I kind of wondered, um, this, is, this is maybe, like, just making you ask a big question because you've written a <laughs> book, um, but do you, do you think women can, like, struggle to pedestal their feelings, to kind of um, give some significant weight to how they feel? Because um, I thought that the... Elodie's kind of narration her, her way of looking in retrospect was kind of a way of, of subverting or um, kind of resolving that idea of always diminishing feelings
2: mm. I think um, yeah the idea of always having to sort of justify or reduce your feelings is something, something that comes up again and again um, in my work but I think with Coast yeah, with Bread Elodie has these massive feelings um, that she doesn't understand and I think as well there's like in case Bread, like, no one's really listening to Elodie. It kind of, in a way, doesn't matter if she has these, like, massive feelings because she's kind of just, like, no one's really understanding or, like, listening to her or really seeing her. So that sense, I think, of, yeah, the, she ha- she's having all these feelings which she can... are so intense and no one's kind of, like, really noticing them blossoming. Um, and in the letters, yeah, there's definitely the sense of rumination. That was the kind of conscious thing that I was doing in the letters, also that sense of kind of... She's just had... You know, she's gone through this incredibly traumatic event, like, both the the massive trauma of the poisoning and also, you know, the trauma of this, like, love affair, which has kind of, you know, maybe not been what she's expected it to be. um, Her entire reality has kind of changed and this sense of if you can just, like, go over the pieces enough, if you can kind of return to something, if you can go to a memory again and again and again... Um, you can almost, like, find the key, you can find some kind of closure, but you, I, you think you can't always, <laughs> you kind of just, you know, you can try to make sense of something, you can go to it again and again, um, but it's not necessarily um, productive in that way.
0: Mm. I really like that, the, the kind of sense of, like, almost being on, like, a, a scavenger's hunt, um, and she'd kind of go back to, to memories or ideas and, and, and see whether they fit better if she, if she returned to them, mm. and it really feels, I don't know whether this is this is how you feel when you, when you write, but, but that... That in, in many ways, like, plot can be as, as much be, like, about just, like, exploring feeling or exploring the body, and that those those have a kind of story as much as, like, you know, writing a kind of grand um, historic event. Yeah, completely. Um, yeah, that idea of yeah ha- having this, like, kind of big historic event but the main
2: focus is on, like, her feelings and her relationship. I think it's just that idea of, like, training a microscope on something rather than, like uh, like, kind of... <coughs> Zooming out almost, um, and you know, it, it so, it, it's so it felt like a very physical book to 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 write. and also like reading it back. I was like I was like struck by how kind of visceral it is and how like how really intense it is. And um, yeah, that I um, yeah, and I think the, the main thing is I think the memory as well. That there's so much memory in the book, and even reading that like first bit there, I was just reminded, I guess, of how how when I was writing it, like memory was the thing I kept kind of thinking about how how the actual experience of memory can feel physical how it can feel bodily how it isn't just emotional but you know like you can you can kind of live in memory like it's a room you can kind of return to something and every time you return to it I think I remember reading I can't remember where, but um I think it might have been I think it actually might have been in um it might have been in the book that the, epita- um, the epigraph came from Sarah Manguso this idea that once you remember something, it's, like, always a bit different. So, like, kind of your memory is never actually completely correct because every time it's, like, alter something in the remembering, you lose something or you gain something. Um, And so this idea in the book that, you know, um, Elodie is always kind of misremembering and she's losing, like, every time she thinks about a treasured memory, every time she thinks about something that she has, something that she she experienced, um, it's, you know, it's different and it's a loss. Mm. as
0: well yeah Maggie Nelson says that in in Bluettes about mm. like memories becoming maybe like, that was where I read actually. <laughs> quite probably <laughs> well it was, I think well maybe it is because it, it does fit so well which is like um, a, a photo album of, of child mm. childhood photographs and like when you when you look at it that kind of replaces what you might remember of, mm. of your true memories and you have this kind of very sense- cemented mm. idea of it and yeah I like do you, do you think the kind of that's what kind of fascinates you, fascinates you the most—the kind of unreliability of that, of like, because for, for Elodie, like, she's trying to, trying to be as precise and assert as as possible, while like completely, you know, f- falling against the fact that it's impossible to ever be certain of what happened.
2: Yeah, completely. Like, she doesn't know what happened. All she has is like this kind of this collage of like memories, but also things that she's been told, um, it's almost, yeah, I kind of just imagined her in the present day narrative, like she's basically um, just piecing together everything she has, she's trying to like figure out the links, she's trying to figure out the missing pieces, but she'll kind of never get there, and it's always eluding her, and it's kind of living in her memories, is like this torment, but also this comfort, and yeah, that, that was something I kind of was thinking about a lot.
0: Um, and you're right when you say it's you know very very visceral and very very intense to read, and um, I think that's something that's you know obviously familiar in, in Blue Ticket and the, the Water Cure, which is these very like strong first person voices um, that you're just completely like overwhelmed by, and I feel like. Voice is really like the, the bricks and mortar of, of your writing. Um, and, you know, all of these worlds that are, are so intense are conjured, conjured by the way that, like, one or, or several voices pre- present it to us. Um, and, I mean, how, how important is voice to you? And do you think you would ever not write in the first person?
2: That's so interesting. Yeah, I've been thinking about that because, yeah, there's three novels with a really strong first-person voice, like, deeply interior, <laughs> um, really, really interior, um, very much about, like, their internal monologue which is you know can be exhausting Um, and I'm actually like yeah I'm working on something now and it is in like third person and it's so different an experience to be writing something where you're the observer and not the person going through it almost Mm. it's again it's like I I am just fascinated by this idea of like how a story changes (coughs) depending on how we approach it like who, who tells it and like you know how much distance we want from it how much we want to be working things out or how much we want to be just told a story like do we want to be like involved or do we just want to kind of listen
0: yeah and and how are you finding it like kind of like enjoying yeah. <laughs> yeah, really just finding it very odd <laughs> um, but yeah it's, it's, yeah <laughs> Um, is that, is that also, cause you started by writing poetry, didn't you? Mm. Um, and I was thinking about that when you were saying a minute ago about the kind of, the magnifying glass, like really, really like telling a, a, a big story by going very, very specific. Um, and like, do, do you think that comes from poetry, both, both potentially the first person, although not necessarily writing first person, but also just the kind of, yeah, specific imagery, the kind of just tuning in on a tiny moment?
2: I think so, like obviously a poem is so kind of stills, and it 's almost like I feel like I came to like distillation backwards, like I started from like a poem and then gradually expanded into short stories, then was like gradually expanding into novels, where I feel like it feels like it should be kind of the opposite, um, but yeah, that idea of. I guess in, in in a way like i I just always always love like finding like that one perfect image or finding that like one perfect sentence, but um I kind of need more than that for a book unfortunately <laughs> um so uh and yeah, you can't have a book made up of like perfect sentences, um but I think that idea of like really slowing down and just kind of finding that moment finding that key image but also like so much can blossom out from that key image so much is around that key image so much happened to make that key image happen and i think sort of getting excited about those possibilities and tapping into that um i think all the stuff around all the stuff around a beautiful image or a beautiful kind of moment in writing is really important all the things that happen around a character and yeah
0: Mm -hmm. but also like when you have all those kind of specific Shards that conjure conjure a world in kind of in, in bits where you 're not showing the whole thing like do, do you kind of think that's really important because there 's so much space within, within that for the reader to imagine, and I don 't know about you, but I kind of feel like it, that it's, it's so important in writing to to leave those spaces for the reader to for them to kind of to fill in to to attach themselves to it with their own imagination
2: mm. i think I think it is important um, I feel like in Chris Bread i didn 't do that so much because it feels quite. I guess because it's quite compressed, it kind of takes place one narrative over a summer and the next narrative, like, you know, obviously a while on, I suppose we have sort of the gap which happened in between. Um, But I think it is, again, like that kind of, that fruitful ambiguity thing, I, I think it is good to like have that space to kind of, to imagine and to,
1: you know, create your own interpretation. Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
0: Um, And I have to ask this question, um, even though it's a question that I think we both got asked basically as soon as the pandemic happened. (laughs) Um, And it was like, I don't even know the effects yet. Stop asking me how it affects my writing. Um, But I mean, obviously, you must have written a lot of this, all of it during the pandemic. Right. Mm. Um, And I mean, you know, it is about isolation, want restlessness collective trauma um so I'd love to know what you think your relationship is between this book and and the pandemic or at least your experience of of writing within that that setting
2: yeah I started it January 2020 so I I did pretty much I think I finished it well finished the kind of early drafts um in the pandemic too so I think I, I pretty much I, I, I think I pretty much wrote the whole thing in the pandemic, so yeah. like, the pandemic's still kind of going on um yeah, um, yeah it started at january twenty twenty and the bulk of the, it was written in the pandemic, so it was definitely i don't know i mean it changed the book materially because i was i had a residency to go to France, I was going to go to the town I was going to like research a lot I was going to kind of um yeah I was going to actually visit and kind of see everything firsthand before I even kind of got into the meat of writing it, so I think um it was going to be a much different book I think it would have been more to do with the history and um, different in that way um, but I think also the experience of kind of being essentially locked in a room um, not locked in a room writing but you know I, I couldn't leave Any, I, I, we forget how weird it was I couldn't see anyone I couldn't really do anything um, I really clung to the book because I didn't have a very good lockdown so the book for me was this thing that I had that I could keep working on and I think that sense of like claustrophobia and fear and also the idea of you know, a massive collective trauma because, um, the book is taking place just after the second world war. And I was thinking, you know, like actually everything can change so quickly. Like the the world you recognize the world you're used to being in can just like completely flip in a second and everything is suddenly strange. And, um, I was like, well, that's something that they had to deal with before the poisoning even happened. Like, what does that do to a town? What does that do to like a community? Yeah, I mean, just the sense of claustrophobia, and like, no one really touches in this book.
0: Actually, it was like it's a
2: very sexy book, but like, it's actually not actual sex happening. <laughs> um, maybe I was like reading it, being like, ah, oh, they can't actually embrace; <laughs> they have to just like shoot some longing looks. <laughs> um, and so that sense of, I think of, I don't know, uh, the sense of like higher stakes and you know thwarted desire, and just like wanting stuff really badly, Um and just kind of not being able to to have it, um and like loneliness, like. Yeah, it, I definitely definitely put a lot of my feelings in this book, <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> for better, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> definitely for
0: better. But yeah, you know, it's kind of like uncomfortably closed source material, isn't it? It's mm. like you, you think you're embarking on writing something that's, that's very separate, that's mm. in the past, and then suddenly... It- slaps you across the face. My thing is that, you know,
2: there's some, been some really great pandemic novels written. Like I'm thinking of Being Coke by Sarah Hall, which is an incredible book. Um, I, doesn't, like, I wouldn't say it's a pandemic book, but it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you can definitely see like maybe the impact of the pandemic. And it. it's not about a pandemic, but um, this is what happens when you yeah, lock a, a novelist with an overactive imagination in a room for like a year and she's slowly losing her mind. <laughs> she's researching this French town and, and can't touch anyone. <laughs>
0: well at least a great novel came out of it (laughs) um aside from the pandemic like what are the kind of uh influences that you think particularly kind of set you on when you're writing I always wanted to
2: write a book like a sport and a pastime by James Salter I think it's the most like incredible book um I I remember reading it a long time and just thinking like it was so kind of erotic but so kind of literary and so beautiful and um so that was kind of a big Influence of the Coast Bread, I was kind of thinking it when I was returning to the story, this, you know, it's kind of a similar time period, that kind of sense of time slowed and, like, beautiful imagery. Yeah, I know, like, we're both, as well, big Javier Marias fans, and I was thinking, you know, I I was kind of um, really interested in his use of, like, um, you know, narrative and um, kind of returning to motifs and how things that seem, like, not connected can all build up into a bigger whole um yeah I was reading a lot during lockdown as well while I was kind of writing the book and um yeah I think living in this kind of living through like words a lot as cheesy as that sounds
0: (laughs) kind of being very absorbed in that as well um yeah and you're a very visual writer so presumably like films music maybe like also had has an impact on your writing yeah, completely. Um, I always do a playlist for every book
2: I write. And so for Coast Bird, I also had a playlist, um, which I was listening to a lot. And What was in it? i uh, was <laughs> actually sort of vaguely forgotten because <laughs> I've written it so long ago.
0: I think there was some, quite a lot of French music. <laughs> yeah. I think there uh, was some, like... Bit... So you kind of, like, plug your headphones in when you're writing and just, like, take yourself to the soundtrack that you've yeah. created. Yeah, also
2: quite a lot of, like, classical music. I think just things that kind of could really help you visualise, like, a scene, things that can help you, like, visualise, visualize, like, um, a colour palette or something that's happening. Um, just anything to kind of, like, trick me into getting this move to write, basically.
0: <laughs> Great. I wondered, like, now that you've written three novels, which is very impressive... You must, like, at this, at this point, you know, people, the critics start talking about you in terms of, like, your evolution. Like, what is, what is a Sophie Macintosh thing to do? Um, but I mean, f- for yourself, like, are you aware of, of how you've evolved as a writer or, like, how your interests may have changed or, like, how your, how your style even may have changed?
2: That is such a nice question. And also, like, I mean, sorry, I was like, I've written three books. <laughs> That's a really <pretty laughs> nice, <right>. <laughs> nice question to, like, be asked. um, um Yeah, I think I'm, you know, I am conscious of the idea of the fact that I can be like vague and ambiguous. I never, I never want that to feel like purposeless. I never want that to feel like it doesn't have a purpose. And I guess the more I write, the more I'm kind of understanding why I do that or kind of getting a handle i was actually thinking i was talking about it to my mum on the way here and she was like oh when you've talked about cursed bread like you f- it feels like it's your favorite and i was like i don't have favorites and i was like i do have favorites <laughs> and I was, like, you know, I was like actually like you know it's nice to kind of to be writing books and feeling like you have um i don't know like working towards something or having more of a handle on your material or yeah feeling like you kind of feel more in control of the process like of, of actual writing and those moments where you like you really you, you, you write something and you're like i nailed it and then like you know maybe in like a, a couple of weeks you were like I did not nail that <laughs> but at the time you like you feel like yes okay I'm like this thing which is so nebulous and which I'm trying to kind of you know like really pin down this sense of feeling uh, or you know an experience I, I I want readers to be having this visceral experience I want them to be um you know like really really I keep saying feeling <laughs> um but you know to, to to figure out kind of what you're doing and to pin it down and to be like yes I did it there I did it there it's such a great thing. Um, so I do think I'm kind of, yeah, getting, getting there.
0: And... What, what's your kind of relationship to uh, your public self as a writer and your private self as a sense of a writer? Like, do, do you find that those, those things can not quite click together? Like, do you, do you now kind of feel more comfortable in, in, the, in the public mode or does it always feel like a slightly strange extension of something what you're asked to do when you, when, you're, when you write books?
2: I think it's really hard to have a separation in this sort of day and age, isn't it? Because it's kind of um, yeah, like you kind of you're on social media and stuff. So I don't really feel like there's that kind of much difference. I guess um, yeah, I guess I kind of I kind of I'm, I feel kind of basically the same for both. But then obviously you know like if there's always I guess you try to be like. Um, I think it's like the kind of personality equivalent of like podcast voice <laughs> when I do a podcast and then suddenly I'm like, hello, I'm Sophie McIntosh and I'm talking about my book. <laughs> um, um, that sense of, um, yeah, like trying to have more of a thick skin or trying to, um, yeah, just be, have more of a handle on kind of what I'm doing.
0: Do you, like, read your reviews and Goodreads and all of that paraphernalia? But,
2: yeah. Yeah, my I, my yeah, my friend calls it bad reads. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but, no, I do, do, do you know what? I think by this point, again, like, three books in, hooray. Um, I kind of, like, don't really mind so much. And I kind of, I think at first, you know, it's like, uh, you know, when you have your first book out, it's absolutely terrifying that anyone would not like what you've written. And it feels really painful. But then it's like, yeah, actually, like, nothing's going to be for everyone in a way it's kind of nice to not be able to please everyone because it means you're doing something a bit different I think or um you know obviously if, if everyone hated my books that would be like not good <laughs> but I think to have developed a bit of a thick skin and to be able to understand like oh, really sometimes it's not me sometimes it's like or sometimes it is me and actually it doesn't mind it doesn't matter if it is me um yeah it's completely fine. Um, yeah, <laughs> sounds very healthy. Sometimes at parties, my best friend will um, go onto Amazon and look at my one-star reviews, and if I've had some drinks, he'll get them to read. He'll get them to read them. Out. <laughs> in, a, in a sort of dramatic
0: monologue. Forces very. Hang <laughs> Uh, I was just thinking, it's like curveball, but when you mentioned your mum, and then I made eye contact with her, hello. Um, <laughs> well, I just don't know, I think it's right that your dad is a GP, I could, could just ask him, um, that your dad is a GP and that your mum was a nurse? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I mean, <laughs> do do you think, like, their jobs have had any influence on you? I'm just thinking because, like, obviously you're your writing is so steeped in like bodily autonomy it's very visceral and there is like I don't know a very much an awareness of like the, the the physical nature of 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 our lives um and that sounds very fluffy but I'm just throwing it at you anyway as to whether you think they've had any effect I, I can't
2: actually look at my parents at this point because I'm gonna start laughing <laughs> 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 thing, my, my parents just remembering like me like coming downstairs and I'm like deep in my, my dad's BMJs like and all the medical journals being like, ah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely horrifying myself and <laughs> just reading all this stuff about like, you know, illness and stuff because that was kind of what we had lying around. <laughs> yeah, I, just, I think I've always been like, I've had, always had a consciousness of the body <laughs> and uh, the things that can go wrong with the body. But, you know, and, and kind of, yeah, I, I, I don't know, that, again, it kind of goes back to the idea of like, that fe- feeling and kind of visceral stuff and, um, yeah, the idea of like, you know, existing in a in a, in a in a body and kind of yeah fascination with that kind of thing mm.
0: and obviously just like being without it sounding really blah but like obviously like being a woman you, you are you are kind of made aware of like I don't know I, I kind of just I sometimes feel like when when critics kind of talk about your your writing as as dystopian and and in these crazy horrible worlds it, it kind of feels quite convenient um, because I feel like so much of the time you're you're kind of tilting tilting the world um, in, in order to kind of get the reader closer to something that is that's true right there's that, that is that is difficult and hard to, to face mm. um, and I kind of wonder whether yeah that that is what you think that you're you're exploring you're kind of exploring stuff that is very familiar to us. Mm. I think there's
2: something in kind of you know going really deep into things that are very familiar like our bodies and I guess like making it weird again something like i I think i felt it especially with blue ticket which is you know it's about a a woman who is not allowed to get pregnant and she becomes pregnant and i went so deep into pregnancy stuff in that book because the more i was like oh like this is normal pregnancy stuff or we're told it's normal pregnancy stuff and i was like it's so weird (laughs) i was like actually the concept that we grow another person inside this is very weird um and there's so many things around that um yeah all these kind of things that i guess we don't really think about all these things we do um, like we take for granted, just kind of existing. If we actually like slow down and look at it, it's like, is not it kind of incredible <laughs> that we're just sort of walking around, and you know, all these things are happening, and we're experiencing so much that we don't even like really kind of think about.
0: Completely. Um, I should stop there because I think it's time for some questions from the audience. If anyone has any, if you do, maybe raise your hand.
2: Is it always a very short book? Did the word count fluctuate up and down oh thank you did the word count fluctuate up and down did, would, were you like are you a big cutter or was it always just concise I think I, I do kind of tend towards more concise, but I think yeah, kiss bread. it was always quite concise I think it's like it's so intense, and I guess it happens within like quite like a kind of small time frame as well so it kind of there was a bit of fluctuation it went sort of up and down. Um, but it definitely was always kind of towards the small, the small end. But I think like with like previous books, I've maybe like cut like twenty thousand words or something. But that didn't really happen with *Kiss Bread*. It was always just yeah, super, super intense. <laughs> but yeah, I'm always big, big in favor of kind of losing words rather than adding. Like,
0: um, how do you stay disciplined with writing? Like, do you set yourself a target of like like a thousand words a day, or do you do like I'm going to
2: write from like nine till five? How do you? Um, yeah stay disciplined with it I think I'm not very good with like kind of a daily um kind of daily like deadline but I try and set myself like maybe like a weekly or monthly so it's kind of like if I kind of if one day I haven't done it (laughs) um, for whatever reason that I can kind of like make it up um so otherwise I kind of feel like I get a bit discouraged like um and also kind of you know things come up or there's other like work and um you know life life happens and stuff so I think having but having like a more kind of like weekly or even like monthly kind of deadline for myself um, I find it just be easier to kind of make up the time if that makes sense but I think also like figuring out what sort of time works for you as well like I guess by this point I figured out like I'm really bad at writing in like the afternoons but like evenings um for me are great and also like kind of morning so kind of figuring out when my brain is going to be like kind of at its most useful as well and taking advantage of that <laughs> Um, I have another sort of process question. I was wondering when you start a novel, do you feel like you start with with character or with plot
0: or how can you kind of describe like what makes an idea a new novel for you and and how you how you begin, I guess.
2: That's such a that's a really good question. I feel like for each book it's kind of been a little bit different and um, often it usually but well, they often start the same way which is like a, a, a random sentence on a notes app in my phone <laughs> uh, which sort of then becomes bigger um, with Kiss Bread*, it was kind of like the story and um, with Blue Ticket it was actually it was kind of more the idea for a character who was kind of like a character who was not allowed to be pregnant but wanted to be pregnant and became pregnant um, and that then kind of transformed so it's it kind of like it sounds really unhelpful maybe to like starts with a line um but I think like from it normally kind of develops into character for me because I am so interested in kind of the interiority of the characters and interested in their experience more than a kind of larger world building um but yeah kind of figuring out who the character is after that kind of first line
0: how did you find being long-listed for the booker I mean did that destabilize your writing at all or did it inspire it or because it just I mean that's such an enormous achievement it just must have thrown you or built you in some way
2: yeah it was it was an incredible experience I think I think I was so afraid it would destabilize me that I was like I will go the opposite and I was like I was like this is such an amazing thing and yeah I'm really lucky to have like such a good support network around me with writing and stuff and it just I just, it honestly gave me like such a boost and just made me feel like really determined. It kind of, I think there's always like as a debut novelist as well, especially like you kind of feel a bit like I've accidentally done this. <laughs> like I'm going to be found out. Oh, what have I done? This <laughs> is awful. <laughs> um, and to, you know, kind of have that endorsement and are like, no, like you've actually, you've done right. Like you haven't been found, you've actually done something like great and you should sort of carry on doing it. That's kind of what I took away from it. Not to sound like arrogant, but you know, that kind of sense of, it just felt like a really nice endorsement of, um, of my writing um, and I you know really in that way it really sort of boosted my confidence and was yeah incredibly helpful
1: Um, two questions one do you still write poetry and two has any of your poetry ever been the genesis of your ideas for your novels
2: I do, write, I do write poetry I was sorry laughing because so I
0: was like can no one could ever
2: see it because it's terrible <laughs> <laughs>
0: I was like oh, I, will, I, will, I
2: will never see the light of day but I do occasionally still write poetry um, yeah actually um, yeah my, my next book that I'm working on now I, I, I kind of it came from like a poem literally kind of just a line in the poem and then I was like oh this is great again it starts with a line um, so that's kind of been useful in that way but yeah most yeah, my poems they they're not they're not good <laughs> it's just, just not good. But I kind of like, I think it's kind of nice to have something writing wise that is not good, <laughs> and it's just like a thing you do for yourself, and um, no one
0: needs to see ever. <laughs> Can we hear about the next book?
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> you have always got to ask. It's like, it's, it's like, it's a weird love story. Okay. And it's set in a kind of. You're gonna be so surprised to hear it's set in like a kind of
0: uncanny, uncanny world, <laughs> not like our own. <laughs> Shall I go? Uh, um, I'm interested in what you said um, before about not describing the setting in too much detail and so that the reader has opportunity to fill it in or it's not so circumscribed. But it must have been quite disorienting not to have had the... think that you were going to have the residency and to go to the place that your novel was set and then not be able to do that. And I really hope that you did end up taking that up in the end. But um, how did you find that, not um, having... You know, having been to the place where it's set, or had had you already been there, and did you have all those memories stored up about the setting?
2: Sorry, I've been to like i had been to sort of um, places in the region before, so I kind of I was working from memory there, but also like it was a long time ago. I mean, there was points I was literally on Google Maps, I kind of like looking at it, being like, this is not an adequate like you know replacement for going there. And I think again, that kind of I think that's why. I did end up gonna, going a more speculative route in the end because I was like, well, you know, I can't actually do the sense of place justice. I'm basically writing from a different place. Um, there is actually another novel written about um, the poisoning by Barbara Commons, and I actually didn't read it before I wrote before I wrote Coast Bread. I, I read it now, and I'm finding it really interesting because um, it's set, like, again, it's not set in that town. It's set in a different place. It's like the idea of... Um, you, know, you sort of take the idea of something and then you kind of transplant it something else, somewhere else and that 's kind of what I felt I was doing, but yeah, it was like hard because sometimes in my head i 'd have this whole vision of this town and i 'd be like well that 's like not how it happened at all like that 's not like what it looked like. Um, this is completely like i said imagined imagined place and then I' go back to the Google Maps <laughs> and look at the satellite image um, so it was it was strange, but I think it kind of that sense of almost like creating a different place in your mind, I think that was useful in its own own way. But I do kind of like to think about what kind of book it would have been if I'd be able to do it the way I'd first planned, like what it kind of would have ended up like. I think like when we write any kind of book, like there's always like a ghost book or kind of, you know, there's a different direction something could have forked out in. There's always like the bits that you kind of, you cut and you don't keep or there's the point where you decide you want to change direction completely and... Hey, yeah. um, I've wondered three books in if you've ever been tempted or would be tempted in the future to have a male narrator and a male voice
1: rather than a female voice.
2: Yeah, for sure. I'm like, I'm not reading it up. No, um, there is kind of, um, I guess that's the thing about having, yeah, writing a book now in like third person because it's kind of, you're kind of less in someone's head and you do get more of like the view the viewpoint of like um, there's more of a viewpoint of a kind of a male character and it's kind of um, it's not like even a conscious decision I made necessarily all the time, it was kind of just um, what I felt drawn to in the books and what kind of felt right for the story um, but I definitely like, I definitely would Thank you, shall I say thank you? Please <laughs> um, Thank you all very much for your questions and your contributions and say a big thank you to Rebecca and Sophie, thank
1: you so much
0: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.
1: Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe.